You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. But to be honest at the moment, Bill, I think we're focused on our, what we've got in our DFS. We're focused on our work streams. We're focused on starting the mine up. 10-year life of mine producing, as I said, 2.4 to 2.5 million pounds per annum for the first seven years is a really good place to be, I think. And I think that gives us the opportunity to look at these mudstones, look at additional exploration around Kalakira, and also importantly, some of the other exploration areas that we've got, like Livingstonia, where we announced a few months ago the new resource of Livingstonia as well, that could potentially also become a feedstock for Kalakira in the future. Welcome back to Mining Stock Education. I'm your host, Bill Powers. And in today's show, we're getting an update from Lotus Resources. They are developing, or I should say, redeveloping the Kalakira uranium deposit in Malawi. This is a redevelopment opportunity. Paladin Energy used to have this mine in production. I believe it produced about 11 million pounds of uranium historically. And the company just released a new definitive feasibility study uh, towards the goal of bringing this deposit back into production. So Keith Bose, you're the managing director. Thank you for joining me again. Uh, congratulations. I know this was a long time in coming. And could you review some of the, uh, give us a thumbnail overview of the highlights of this definitive feasibility study, please? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Bill. And thanks very much for having me back on again. Yeah. So as you've said, we've just put up the feasibility study. Really, really happy with the results. I think when we consider the current environment that we're in for us to be able to hit our targets of less than $30 per pound cash costs, managing to control our capital costs as we go forward. So the original 50 million US dollars that we spoke about for the refurbishment of the plant is still a valid number based on our study. We have, however, included some additional capital to the tune of about $38 million for some of the technology that we want to implement as well. So, for example, the ore sorting that we've previously spoken about, the connection to the grid to be able to reduce our power costs, the um, expansion of the nanofiltration circuit to allow us to recirculate acid more effectively within the system. All of those costs have now been included in the feasibility study, and the benefit of that extra capital is really driving our cash costs down to less than $30 per pound, as I said. We've managed to maintain a 10-year life of mine, producing on average between 2.4 and 2.5 million pounds per annum of uranium, at least for the first seven years. We mine for about six years and then we treat stockpiles for the remaining four years of the schedule. And as we start moving into the stockpile treatment, our production profile does go down. So over the 10 years, we produce a total of almost 20 million pounds of uranium. Let's start with the the CapEx in this inflationary and supply chain challenge environment the last two years. We've seen a lot of gold and silver mines in North America unsuccessful in their attempts to bring those mines into production, especially for my North American listeners that have been maybe burned on some gold or silver uh, development stories. How can we be sure that your CapEx uh, is as stated in this definitive feasibility study? I think the first comment to make is obviously this is not a new build. So we already have all the existing infrastructure in there. And the capital that we're talking about in our project is actually for the refurbishment. So it's to do some civils works, it's to do some little bit of bulk earthworks, it's to do some repairs to tanks, it's to do some anti-corrosion work, it's to do um, some upgrades to some of the equipment that's probably a bit, you know, a bit faded or something like that, new motors and those types of things. So apart from the asset plant, and I'll get on, Uh, We'll talk about the asset plant a little bit later. But apart from the asset plant, the majority of the capital has actually been spent 
on those types of activities, which are not capital and intensive, but perhaps more labour intensive. So we need a workforce there to do the anti-corrosion work, to do the to do the um, improvements and all that kind of stuff. And those sorts of costs have not been impacted as much as buying new equipment, I don't believe. So we're confident with those numbers. As I said, it does confirm the number we had back in the scoping study, which again confirmed the number that Paladin had back some time ago. So we have looked through this and others have also looked through this on a number of occasions and we've all come back with sort of the same number as well. So we do have high confidence in that number moving forward. In terms of the human personnel or talent that you need to redevelop uh, this mine, are you hiring locally or are you bringing in people from out of the country? So we're going to have a combination, I think, as is common in Africa. So when we're doing the refurbishment and the reinstallment of some of the equipment and all that kind of stuff, there will be some senior management that will be expatriates to be able to provide the skill set. But certainly the majority of the people working on the plant, both during the construction phase and also during the operation phase, will be locals. So if we have a look at our operating organogram, we're going to have at least in the plant and across the admin, something like 450 Malawian nationals employed compared to about 53 expatriates. When you look at our mining contractor, he's provided us with some numbers as well. And he's talking sort of 200 local Malawian workers and maybe about five to 10 sort of expatriates. So you're talking about a very, very large portion of our workforce is going to be local Malawian employees. Do you have all your community agreements in place? We're busy at the moment doing our last community development agreement. So as per the new Mining Act that came out in Malawi in 2019, because we have a large-scale mining license, we are required to have in place, prior to the start of production, a community development agreement. And the community development agreement allows or states that we must provide a minimum of 0.45% of our gross revenues must be used on our community projects. So we have had multiple discussions with the communities over the last six months met with what's called all of our qualified communities. So a qualified community is defined as any community within a 20 kilometer radius of the mine. Those are the communities that will benefit from the CDA. We're going through the final stages and should have that document signed very, very soon as well. But that only really kicks in prior to, uh, when we start producing on the mine because it's based on the revenue stream coming out of the mine. We've got a very good relationship with our, uh, with our local communities. We get on very, very well with all the chiefs. The paramount chief who's effectively the king of northern Malawi is, is very, very close to what we're going on and very, very supportive. We've met with the various NGOs in Karonga, which is the nearest city, and they're also very, very supportive. So we feel very, very comfortable from a community perspective and from a social license to operate that we're in a very, very good situation at the moment. Are there any permits you still need to obtain from the government? We have our environmental license. We have our mining license, which are, which are two big ones. We have a permit to discharge water. We have a permit to take water as well. There are some smaller ones that we require. And the one that I always reference is the permit required to transport our product. So when we produce the final yellow cake uh, product, we need to transport it to one of the ports. We need a permit for that. But we can only start that process when we, when we start producing. So those are the types of permits we're talking about, specific and relatively small, let's say, in terms of their scope of getting it done compared to your mining license and your environmental license. As I read through the documents, it seems you also have to negotiate with the government for electricity. Is that correct? 
So there's two things we want to do. So there's ESCOM, which is the Malawian electricity utility. We've had a lot of discussions with them lately because one of the um, things we wanted to do was to connect to the national grid because the national grid is obviously a lot cheaper than running diesel gensets. In the discussions with them, we've identified there's probably about four megawatts of power available to us that we can take off the grid. Unfortunately, that's not all that we require, but is a significant portion of it. So we've been talking with them about how we can connect onto the grid. And at the moment, the discussions are along the lines of it's going to cost around $13 million for us to install the transmission line and the um, various uh, capacitor banks and the transformers and all that stuff. We will pay for that up front. So it's included in part of our capital. But the expectation is we'll get a rebate from ESCOM on our tariffs to recover that capital cost. And at the end of life of mine, all of that equipment gets handed over to the Malawi, uh, to ESCOM for them to be able to use as well. So that's one side of the discussions. We're also discussing with the Malawi government about a mine development agreement, which will set the fiscal regime in which the project will work. And those negotiations are ongoing at the moment. When I looked over the documents, I couldn't see a net present value calculated. Can you discuss why that wasn't included? Yeah, so there were two things really behind that. First of all, is the mine development agreement. So only once we've completed the negotiations around that, will we know the tax regime that we need to use, the royalty regime and all those types of things. So that's one part of why we didn't do it. The other one is we are still progressing our offtake agreements with the various utilities we haven't signed anything yet, um, so we're not too sure at what price we'll be able to sign contracts. Obviously, we have a minimum price in our mind of which we would like to sign at, but at the moment, we have no clear sight of what those uh, prices could be. So for those reasons, we've decided to not announce an MPV or produce an MPV. We will potentially look at uh, putting out an announcement that maybe is an update on the feasibility study once we've completed the MDA and once we've completed our offtake agreements. So before you can make your financial investment decision, I believe it, you've allotted about six months from now to give yourself that decision-making uh, timeframe. What, what needs to happen? You need to initiate some initial contracts, get some hedging in place. Can you talk through what needs to happen in the next six months? So the three main work streams that we're going to be focusing are getting the MDA in place, the mine development agreements in place. That's absolutely critical before we advance anything else. We'll be working with the various utilities so myself and the rest of the team were in uh, Montreal a month and a half ago or so for a nuclear conference. We met a number of the North American utilities. We're off to London at the end of this month for the World Nuclear Association Conference, where we've lined up meetings with European and Asian utilities. So we need to advance those negotiations and see what we can do in terms of perhaps some long-term agreements that we can sign with them. And then the third one is really around financing. How are we going to finance this project? I mean, we've had initial discussions with people already. There's an option. Some of our peers in Australia have gone down the 100% equity route. I'm not too sure if that's where we want to go. I think some debt financing would be quite good for us. But we also know from a various uh, traders that we've spoken to, uranium traders, this is, there may be an opportunity for us to get some upfront payment from these traders as well that we can use as part of our uh, capital raise as well. So there's a few things to still sort through on that, but those are the three main work streams we're looking at. And in parallel with that, we're going to be progressing perhaps some of our front-end engineering and design and maybe looking at some early works on site that may be able to you know, accelerate the, uh, the program. 
And also we're waiting for some confirmation around some long lead items as to whether we should be placing orders for some of our longer lead items as well. Keith, I'd like you to delve a little bit more into your hedging philosophy because I know more than a few uranium investors or speculators. And when they buy a uranium stock, they want to be exposed to the upside that they perceive in uranium on a price per pound basis. So how are you going to hedge and get things in place for your CapEx, but at the same time, leave the upside for your investors? I think one of the things that we've discussed, and I think, Bill, I think you and I have had a bit of a discussion about this before. There's a number of different ways of doing your contracting in the uranium space. So when you look at your term contracts, there's a what you might call the traditional method, which is probably a base escalated contract that you put in place. So with the utility, you, you agree on a price today and it gets escalated by CPI or some other factor on an annual basis, and that's what you get paid. That's a very fixed and very low risk option to go forward. The option that I like is more a market-related contract. And what we mean by a market-related contract, it has exposure to some of the things like spot prices or long-term prices. So we know companies like Trade Tech, like UXE, publish daily and publish monthly prices. So what you might want to do in um, in one of these contracts is to say, right, the price that I will get paid will be made up of one-third of the spot price, one-third of the long-term price, and one-third of a fixed price. And what that allows you to do is if the spot price does increase significantly, you get some of the benefits of the spot price, but not all of the benefits, of course. But if the spot price drops significantly, at least you're protected by your long-term price and by your spot price. So I think that's a good way. Instead of getting these huge variations in spot price moving forward, you probably get a smoother, but you still do get some of the upside. So I certainly want to pursue that as an option. But I also recognize that we don't necessarily have to put all of our production into these term contracts. If I can choose some basic numbers, so we've demonstrated that we have a cash cost of just less than $30 per pound. If we could get an average price in those term contracts of $60, we may only consider putting in half of our production into those contracts. That means that all of our cash costs are covered with our long-term contracts We then have the opportunity with our remaining material, the remaining 50%, to either put that into the spot market or maybe put it into short or medium-term contracts to try and get some of that upside, as you said, when it it comes through. So those are the discussions we're having at the moment. As I said, we haven't signed anything yet, but we're certainly having these types of conversations with various people. The Calicara uranium supplied, I believe, the North American market when it was in production previously, but you mentioned you're also talking to Europeans. So would it be cheaper to ship it to Europe than North America, or would it be the same? That's basically the same. To be honest, the the biggest portion of our shipping costs or our transport costs is actually getting the material from Calicara to the port. Once you've got it on a boat, whether you send it to Canada, you send it to North America, or you send it into Europe, it's not a great deal of difference in the cost there. And we're quite happy sending them to anything. As you said, Calicara has previously sold into North America. It is also sold into Taiwan and to Europe as well. Okay. Now on the upside at the deposit, I think your reserve in, takes about half of your resource. Is there any way that you can convert that resource into reserve in the future to extend the mine life? One of the things that we're looking at is that a significant portion of the mineralized material that's in the resource but hasn't made it into the reserve is a mudstone, is a mudstone component. Now, we know in the current process that we have, we're limited about the amount of mudstone that we can put through the process. 
And the reason why we limit it is it affects the viscosity, the rheology of the leach tanks, of the leaching process. So we, so we try and manage that to below 20%. We'll have a look around some options of how we can potentially treat that mudstone differently, whether we can use some kind of upgrading factor that maybe gets rid of the clays and all those types of things, which we know are the components that impact the rheology, such that we can, can then convert that into feed and into a reserve going forward. So those are things we're looking at. But to be honest at the moment, Bill, I think we're focused on our, what we've got in our DFS we're focused on our work streams. We're focused on starting the mine up. 10-year life of mine producing, as I said, 2.4 to 2.5 million pounds per annum for the first seven years is a really good place to be, I think. And I think that gives us the opportunity to look at these mudstones, look at additional exploration around Calakera, and also importantly, some of the other exploration areas that we've got, like Livingstonia where we announced a few months ago the new resource in Livingstonia as well that could potentially also become a feedstock for Calacara in the future. Because that had the same metallurgy, if I remember from our last conversation. That's correct. It's sitting in the same sort of historical sandstones and all that. It looks like it's got the same uh, arcos, mudstones associated with it. So we're confident that the mineralogy and the rock types are very, very similar to what we're looking at at uh, Calacara. Anything you're going to be doing on your Rare Earths project as you focus on Calicara? Yeah, we have been working. I know people have been asking me this question about what's happening with the Rare Earths over the last month or two. We are working through those slowly. We completed a drill program. We've got some assay results back from that that we're reviewing. We've done some more sampling in the trenches and we're getting some mineralogy done on those various samples. So there will be an announcement that will come out relatively shortly, I think, on where we are with the Rare Earths. Um, our comments at the moment or thoughts at the moment is that the rare earths are quite patchy. Um, we'd have to have a bit of a think about how we understand how they're formed and what are the opportunities there. So that'll all come out in the announcement that we put out in the next month or two. And where does the treasury sit? I know you have restricted and unrestricted cash in there. So as of the end of June, we had $5 million of unrestricted cash. That's $5 million Australian dollars that we can use. The restricted component, the 15 million Australian dollars, which is equivalent to 10 million US, is associated with our environmental bond, which we can't access. So we had quite a high cash burn the first half of this year, as we did all of our exploration work, as we did our feasibility study work, and as we did a lot of geotech work around uh, investigating the pits and all that. So our cash burn has reduced significantly since the end of June. So we still have some, you know, way ahead of us before we have to really start looking at something. But there's certainly a discussion going around about what timing we should look at a raise. And that'll be dependent on the price that we can get when we do a raise. So we have six months allotted for the financial investment decision and the things that need to happen before then. And then we have 15 months after that decision. Is that correct? Before you can That's become correct. in production. That's correct. So we're saying that 15 months after final investment decision, we will be producing material and we estimate about 18 months before we can deliver our first product to our customers. Okay. And so just as we conclude here, Keith, what are the next catalysts, let's say in the next three months that investors should look for? I think it'll be to do with the mine development agreement, some offtaker, hopefully, and updates on where we are with the financing, if we've made any moves over there. We're also heavily focused in our ESG uh, components as well. So there'll be a sustainability report coming up in the next couple of months as well. The, millennia, uh, the rare earths, as I spoke about, and of course, we did the drilling at Chulumba as well, which was an exciting uh, exploration area. There'll be some results coming out from Chulumba as well, uh, as well within the next couple of months.
Okay. Well, the company's website is lotusresources.com.au. In Australia, it goes under the ticker LOT. In the States, on the OTC markets, it trades as LTSRF. Keith, thanks for coming on the show and providing this update. Thanks very much, Bill. Good seeing you again. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty dollars or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10-for-1 returns as there is in small-cap and micro-cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident. And just do your work as best you can. Do your very best. But don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents. But it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.